0: your neighbor and say, just love Jesus. Amen. Now open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 15. Doing so many things in the church. I'm so glad my wife brought that word to be a Mary and not a Martha. If you haven't read that story in your Bible yet, you really should. The story is that Mary and Martha were sisters and they were hanging out with Jesus. And as they were hanging out with Jesus... Martha was doing all the work. She was getting all the dishes cleaned. She was taking care of the house. And Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, probably just drooling and crying, doing something. And Martha says to her, come and help me work. Jesus, tell Mary to get up from worshiping you and to help me work. And Jesus said, no, she picked the best thing. So if you've noticed in this church, we worship God. That's the number one priority, Metro Praise. If you didn't get it in the name, okay, then you got to get it in the vision, Loving God, Loving People. If you don't get it after that, we're just going to pray for you, and we're going to pray for healing, amen, because we love people that ride the small bus to school. We love them, okay, and we'll take you just as you are. So if you don't get it after the name Metro Praise and Loving God, Loving People, that's okay, we're going to pray for you. Look at your neighbor and say, we're going to pray for you. I just need you all to help me preach today. Just look at your neighbor and say, he needs my help. I'm, I'm sorry, he needs my help. He needs me to talk a little bit. Jeremiah 44:15. 15, if you're there, say I'm there. I'm going to read you this passage, and then we're going to discuss what it means in its context, because you may not get it at first, but let us read it, and then I believe you'll get it. Then all the men who knew that their wives were burning incest to other gods, along with the women who were present, a large assembly, and all the people living in lower and upper Egypt, Egypt said to Jeremiah, We will not listen to the message you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We will certainly do everything we said we would. We will burn incense to the Queen of Heaven and will pour out drink offerings to her, just as we and our fathers, our kings and our officials did, and our, our kings and our officials did in the towns of Judea and in the streets of Jerusalem. At that time we had plenty of food and were well off and suffered no harm. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. I want you to write on the top of your notes, when being right doesn't work. Just write at the top of your notes, the sermon titled today, when being right doesn't work. Now let me explain to you what we just read. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's a prophet to the people of Judea. Jeremiah is telling these people, because of their idolatry, they are going to be judged. God is going to punish them. What does that mean, God is going to punish them in this context? It means that God is going to send the Babylonian army to invade their land, to kill a lot of their people, to then take them as slaves back to Babylon, And then Jerusalem will be destroyed. That's what God said he was going to do to his own people. Hello, somebody. How much harder and worse do you think it's going to be for the wicked on the day of judgment? If God says these Jews are my chosen people, and because they've acted up, I want to destroy Jerusalem, kill many in their army, and take their people as slaves to Babylon, what do you think God will do on Armageddon on judgment day? The Bible says it's terrifying. The Bible says the blood of that battle, a billion will die, will be as high as a horse's head for 130 miles. Could you imagine such a bloodshed? We've never seen anything like that in our day. Now, where we're at in this passage, Jeremiah 44, is he's been very specific to these people. Their idols are, a, uh, this one specific idol is called the Queen of Heaven and they're burning incense to this queen, and they're worshiping this woman idol. Now, this is a nice place to make a side note about people who worship Mary. What do they call Mary many times? The queen of heaven. Do you think that's any coincidence that the devil duped Christians to worshiping Mary's mother as the same idol that pagans worshiped thousands of years before Mary was ever even born? Jeremiah is living about 1,500 years before the time of Mary, and this woman goddess was called the Queen of Heaven. So just look at your neighbor and say, don't worship Mary. It won't go good for you. Trust me, don't do that. So anyways, these people are worshiping this idol, the Queen of Heaven. And Jeremiah says, you are going to captivity because of this. You are being judged because of this. Now, the situation began to unfold like this. The Babylonians began to cut off their supply routes to Jerusalem. So the Babylonians would take over a road and would not let other countries come into Jerusalem with food. So they began to starve. Babylon began to poison their water. And so the the Jews had no water to drink. So before they invaded Jerusalem, they basically were starving them and making them weak all by the the as they would say, sieging a city. Everybody say, sieging a city. And so Jeremiah comes out and he tells the people, the only hope you have is to repent and turn to God. And he, could prob- he can probably, he's, he's not even promising them at this point. He's saying God might spare you. He, j- he might. Because you still may go through it no matter what. And, and he's promising them that if at least they try to repent at this time, God will be merciful and maybe not as many people will die. What you just read was their response. Listen to it again now that you understand the story. All the women, verse 15, all the people there who were burning incense, all of the women, verse 16, were there. What did they say? We will not listen. Can you imagine that? Here they've been told you're already going to be destroyed possibly you can maybe avert some of the destruction, but, but you're going to go through it no matter what. So plead to God for mercy, and maybe he'll hold it back. And they're saying, we're not even going to listen to you, Jeremiah. We're not even going to make an effort. As a matter of fact, they said, we will do everything. Look at verse 17, everything we said we would do. Because like good pagans, and Islam is a modern pagan religion, All that Islam does today has been around for thousands of years in pagan religions. How many times they pray, how they wash their hands before they touch their book, how they have sacred names, they say peace be upon every time they say a prophet. All of those things come from paganism, okay? So Islam is just a modern form of paganism. So these people had dedicated their life to their false god. And they're saying, man, we're not going to stop praying towards this god. Now, here is where the message stood out to me when I was reading it. This week and where I want to share it with you may not be the most exciting message, but I want to speak to your heart and to your mind today. I want to speak to your emotions and to your intellect. Their excuse back to Jeremiah was when we were worshiping the queen of heaven, we had no problems. But now, since you've been trying to reform Israel, now we're having all these problems. Listen to their excuse. I'm going to give it to you in, in Black and white, verse 18. But ever since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have had nothing and have been perishing by sword and famine. But hold on. Weren't they perishing by sword and famine because they were worshiping the queen of heaven? But you see, they were so foolish, they couldn't understand. That, that was the punishment for them doing wrong. So here's what they thought to themselves. They thought that if what they were doing was so wrong, it wouldn't have ever brought them anything right. You see, they look back on their times and they said, well, when I was worshiping the Queen of Heaven, I had money babylon wasn't invading us they said when i was worshiping the queen of heaven my children were fine everything was good it's ever since all of this babylonian things have been happening and quote-unquote god's judgment that all of our problems are here they're saying why should we try to change when really when everything was at its best we were doing this come on somebody use your mind start thinking through this with me what stuck out to me is was, was not our economy You see, because of man's greed, because of bankers, because of politicians lying, we got into this mess. And I want you to put yourself in somebody's shoes if you're not in it right now. So put yourself in somebody's shoes and just think of what I'm I'm trying to say here. Let's say two years ago you were a homeowner of a $600,000 house and real estate was your business. And you were just, you know, charging every penny you could. And you were giving nobody a break. And my wife and I felt the greed of these people, bankers, just racking up the interest rate. Nobody cared about anybody giving you quick, fast, and easy loans. Okay, imagine you're this owner. And all of a sudden, the economy goes down, and now you have nothing, and this was two years ago, and so now you have to foreclose on that house, the house you're living, you got to foreclose, you've got to close your real estate business. I know people like this. Come on, listen to me. If this ain't you, just get where I'm coming from, because it's going to hit you in just a minute, if it's not already. Now, imagine you close down that business. You tell to your children, we ain't going to celebrate Christmas like we did last year. We're not going to go out to Disney World like we did during the summer. And now what begins to happen, you begin to, that person begins to say, i got to go to church. My life is messed up. I just lost my house. I lost my business. Um, my family's, you know, they're depressed. I've got to go to church. So think, think about this. Two years ago, that person goes to church, and they begin to go to church. And they're working at, you know, I'd say they're working at Home Depot now because they've got something to do with the real estate business. They're working at Home Depot. They went from owning hundred dollars homes to working at Home Depot. And this man gets his $200 paycheck. And the pastor's telling him, you tithe, God's going to bless you. You tithe, God's going to bless you. And he starts to tithe. But a year goes by, and it only gets worse. You see, that's what I'm talking about right now. Is what do we say to that person who just did the right thing? Now you know what they could be saying because it's been two years. They could say, hey, I tried church. Man, I went to that church. I paid my tithes. I was singing. I was loving Jesus. But I'm still broke, busted, and disgusted. Man, you know when it really went good for me? When I was going out drinking beer, being greedy. I'm going to go back to that person because that's when it worked. You see, people today in the church have that same mentality. You may not be going through it in the economy, but so many times people here, you think to yourself, man, when I do God's thing, no bad thing can happen to me. And I see it all the time in people's lives when Christians are serving God and all of a sudden just one bad thing happens. They lose their job. Their husband doesn't want to be with them. Their children begin to act crazy. You know what they say? It was better when I was over here. My life was better when I was over here, when I was letting my husband cheat, when I was looking at pornography, when I was hanging with the kids, you know, the bad kids. I was having more fun. I had more friends. You see, today's message comes from this this passage right here. What are you going to do when being right doesn't work? You see, write this down on your note. Pragmaticism, P-R-A-G-M-A-T-I-S-M. P-R-A-G-M-A-T-I-S-M. Pragmatism teaches the philosophy that if something is good, then it works right. And right here and then you stop and you think to yourself, well, that kind of makes sense. If it's good, it works. You go to a mechanic because he can fix your car. That's being pragmatic. You go to a dentist to fix your teeth, that's pragmatic. Most of the time we live as pragmatics. That means if it works, it's good. If it's good, it works. And some of you might not understand this right now, but here's the definition. Truth is preeminently to be tested by the practical consequences of belief. So here's what somebody pragmatic says. I believe if I develop a roof, rain will not come down. The other pragmatic says, do it. He builds a roof. Rain doesn't leak in through the roof. They said, that worked. That's being pragmatic. But where do we go wrong with this idea? Because everybody has this idea in their heart. If it works, it's right. If it's right, it works. Think about it. If it's wrong, it doesn't work. If it's right, uh, if it it works, it can never be wrong. And if it's wrong, it can't work. If it's right, it works. If it works, it's right. Think about it, friends. Just put right and work. Put a little circle. Then put wrong and broken, put a little circle. just that's how we think. But let me give you some ideas where being pragmatic doesn't work and where it can be right. Let me give you an example. Hitler said that to end disease, we just need to kill the people with diseases. How many know? that's right. It may not feel right, but that would be right. you see? Oh, See, all of a sudden you start to get your morals involved, but I'm going to get to those morals in just a second. But I want to deal just with your pragmatism, because we bring that pragmatism attitude into church, just like these people in day stated. That if it works, it better be right, and if it's right, it better be it better work. And all of a sudden we say something like, "Well, why don't we kill all the people with diseases? All diseases is gone." Now all of a sudden sun rises up, in you and says, "Oh, I can't do that." Let me give you another illustration. If you beat your child unconscious every every if you beat your child conscience every time they disobeyed you, do you think that they would keep disobeying you after a while? I bet you you could beat your child into obeying you. I bet you that would be right. I'm being honest. I bet you you could beat your child till they would obey you. But you know what? When they leave, there would be something else. But I'm just giving you what would be right and not work. And I just told you something that would work, but not be right. See, it would work to kill everybody with diseases, but it wouldn't be right. It would work, though, wouldn't it? Every, you, you, don't, you don't want any more AIDS? Kill everybody with AIDS right now. And every time you find one, kill them, kill them, kill them. And then before you know it, you got what Hitler was trying to do, end diseases, get a perfect race. It, w- it would work, but it wouldn't be right. Now, you beat your child, oh, that will work. Oh, yeah, every time they disobey, uh, disobey you, you beat them unconscious. But it's not right. And then you find things that work, or or rather that are right, but don't work. Husbands, how many know you can be right, but it don't work out for your benefit? Amen. How many know husbands, you can come and tell your wife how right you really are, but it ain't going to work? Oh, come on. I need somebody. I only got a few married people, but I got all the married men saying amen. And I want to go back on the women's. How many women know you can be right and nag your husband, but it ain't going to work? You nag him on that, that door that needs to be fixed. You nag him, you nag him. That's going to make him want to sleep and watch the game even more. But if you, but if you do a little bit different of a way, you, you come up, honey, you're so beautiful. You're the best carpenter in the whole house. I know you could do this. See? Because a lot of times you're right, but it don't work out right. Now, let me give you the example here in the Bible. Everybody turn to uh, Acts chapter 7. Let me break some of your pragmatism in Christianity so you don't get discouraged and quit. Because I don't want anybody to quit. Somebody say don't quit. Because things that you do right may not always work out the way you planned them. That doesn't mean God's ways are not right. It just means it's not for your benefit at that time. Because it's not all about you. I'm going to show you right now, Stephen, Acts chapter 1, verse 7, uh, Acts chapter 7, rather, verse 1. If you're there, say I'm there. Okay, then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? Here's the story. Stephen is a young man preaching the gospel in the city of Jerusalem. He gets arrested for doing what's right. He gets arrested. Listen to me. He's not selling crack. He's not pimping ladies on the corner. He is loving Jesus, and he gets arrested. See right there. It's right, but it ain't working. It ain't working for him. What's he supposed to have? According to the pragmatic attitude of the church, what was Stephen supposed to have? A big church. What's Stephen supposed to have right here? A lot of money. You see, how do we think? You go to a small church, oh, that church ain't that that right. It ain't that good. Why? Because it ain't working. If that church was right, then that church would be big. I remember being right here on the corner. I was evangelizing. This, this Polish gentleman came up to me, probably the biggest medallion of a cross I've ever seen. Gilbert, were you with me that day? He's not descent. The biggest gold medallion of a cross I've ever seen. And I said, Sir, would you uh, have a few moments to talk about Jesus? Oh, I don't talk about Jesus on the streets, I go to church to talk about Jesus. And I said, I said, that's okay. We talk about Jesus like Jesus on the streets. And, he, and then he looked at me, and I was just, I can't, I can't even imitate the look of disgust, but I've never been looked at so dis, like a disgusting look. Just kind of, he just looked at me so disgusted. My priest would never stand out here and talk about God. That's all he said to me. He was disgusted with me. Because his priest would never stand out there. I said, your priest may not stand out here because your priest is nothing like Jesus. I said, Jesus would stand out here. And then as he was leaving with his big golden medallion, he was saying, Oh, my church has gold and steeples and it's big. You're just a loser or you're whatever you call me, a fool. Literally, I heard that. You see why? Because he's a Pragmatic. He's thinking to himself, if I am right, if Joe was right, then Joe would have a big church like his priest. Right? Think the way he's thinking. Come on. You're not so spiritual that you can't get it today. Come on. He's thinking to himself, if Joe was right, then Joe would have a big building. Let me give you another example. This is not with a Catholic. This is with an evangelical church. I've sat down with people from different churches. And they say our church is so blessed. Our church is so blessed. We have a million dollar facility. My pastor has a television show. Wherever he goes, he writes books and charges twenty two dollars. <laughs> Whatever. My pastor is the best pastor in our church. We we got everything. Does your church make disciples? Uh, I don't know what that is. I mean serious. I heard this woman tell me about her church really for five minutes at my kitchen table. And I said to her, I said, but do you become a disciple at your church? And she said, well, there's a membership class. I said, how long is that? She says, it's seven weeks. And then I began to share with her, you know, oh, we make disciples and this is what we do. And you could just tell the look in her face. And she just says, my church does that. That's all she had to say was, my church does that. Because in her mind, her seven-week sit-down with the pastor for a half-hour discipleship meeting was better than our whole program and all the hours we put into it. Why? Because her church is bigger. It's bigger. And if it's bigger, that means it's working. And if it's working, that means it's right. You see, because things that are right work. And things that are wrong don't work. So here's Stephen. So he's right, right? Everybody say, right? So what's supposed to happen now? He's supposed to have a big church. We'll go on down to verse 54. When they heard this, after his sermon, praise God, he preaches like a whole chapter on the whole Bible. He summarized the whole Bible in a chapter. When they heard this, they took out their textbooks, they bought him a private jet, and he started his own TV ministry. When they heard, this is Stephen's first sermon. This is his first time preaching. The, the Lord is like, go make disciples of all nations. Amen, Lord. I'll go do that. And here he goes, I'm giving it a try. Jesus loves you. And all of a sudden he's arrested. He's like, y'all haven't even heard the whole message yet. He says, let me tell you the whole message. Then after the whole message, now he's not just arrested. Now they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand and said, Look, he said, I see the heaven open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. What are you going to do when being right doesn't work? Hello? What are you going to do in life when you try to be right and it doesn't work? When you try to love your neighbor, but they keep backbiting you. When you try to do what's right on your job, but they still fire you. What are you going to do when you're, still, when you're teaching your children Jesus and having devotions, but one still goes crazy and does drugs? Like my mother prayed and did nothing wrong in my life, but I went out and acted wrong. What are you going to do in those times in your life when you've done what's right, but it's still wrong? I want to give you another example. Look at Paul in 2 Corinthians. Trust me, it's going to get good. I'm going to give you the answer to this at the end, but I just want to provoke your learning. I want you to hear it with your heart and your intellect today. Put it together. How do I live Christianity? Is it all just about working and it being right and it always working out? Or can you take a lick and it keep on ticking? 2 Corinthians 6, 4, when you're there, say I'm there. I'll wait for some of you. Second corinthians six four is in the bible. It's always been there All you gotta do is find it If you don't know how to find a passage in the bible look at the table of contents The chapters are, or rather the names of books are written out there The name I say first is the name of the book second corinthians the big letter uh, numbers when you get to those Uh places in the book is called chapters little numbers are called verses everybody say thank you pastor There you go. You'll get better. You'll get better. Look at verse four. Somebody say i'm there if i'm there there you go. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Okay, so Paul, the great apostle, wrote most of the New Testament, had a doctorate de- degree in divinity. Is going to tell you how it was for him. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Somebody say, that's a real pastor. You see, right there he says, this is what I'm going to tell you I'm doing, y'all. I am getting beat up. I'm getting in riots. I'm working hard. I'm having sleepless nights. Amen. I can say amen to that. I'm going through hardships. So Paul's resume wasn't, hey, guys, everything's going smooth for me over here. You got it, dude. He wasn't saying, like, people are like, hey, how you doing? I'm blessed. Just so blessed. How you doing, Paul? I'm blessed. Oh, can't stand it. So blessed. Paul, no. Paul's like, I'm getting beat. Pray for me. I'm in a riot right now. I'll call you back later. They've just arrested me. I'm out in the deep. I'm hanging onto a log. I'm, w- I'm waiting three days until I get brought into shore. Everybody's betrayed me. But look at what he says God is doing in those times, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech, in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness, in the right hand, the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report, good report, genuine, yet regarded as imposters, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. That That's how Paul looked at life. Paul said, I get beat, but I'm not dead yet. I'm going to get up and try it again. Paul said, people talk bad about me, but I'm going to keep living right with or without them. Paul said, I may have a hardship, but I can make it through this. I have a test, but it will become my testimony. You see, the thing that I want to put in your heart today is that you cannot give up when things don't go your way. The best way to look at your life is that you are a small piece of a puzzle that is being put together and you don't know why your pieces are connecting the way they do. But the God who's making you does. And you trust him. Though a piece come next to you, that's hardship. Though a piece comes next to you, that's death in your family. Though there are things that are wrong when you're doing so right, you say, God, you are the maker. I'm the creation. I trust you. It's only when we start telling God where to put the pieces of our life that we get frustrated. And we begin to mistake blessings with God's blesser, the blesser himself. We begin to think if we have money, that means we have God. We begin to think if we have big toys, then that means we have God. No, Bill Gates is the richest man in the world. Warren Buffett is the richest man, and he's the second rather now. The richest people in the world don't have God. Okay? And I know it's a blessing when I get a house or you get a promotion. And we, we ought to give the glory to God, and they'll be judged for not doing that. But listen to me. Because Microsoft became such a great company does not mean God was blessing them. He was doing wrong, but it worked out right for the time. And you see, you can get so deceived, and the Bible even says, matter of fact, turn with me here to Psalms. And I'll give you the number, the address when we get there. But you can look at David. David said that he had saw other people doing good, and they were sinning, and he was going through hard times, living righteous, and he felt that it was unfair. And I'm not going to be able to find that passage really quick, so somebody find it for me or Andrew. Just look up. What's that? Praise God for a Bible scholar in the house. I was stalling as long as I could. Y'all didn't know that, but I was just talking while flipping here. Here we go. Come on, somebody say, Thank you, Lord. Look at verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Why? Verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Thank you, brother, for helping me because I just got that Holy Ghost down. I want you all to see that David began to look at the wicked people prospering. And he said in verse 4, they have no struggles Their bodies are healthy and strong. You look at Arnold Schwarzenegger. He looks like he has it all together. His body's strong. I was watching Terminator on TV last night, so I guess I'm saying that. Oh, look at him. He looks so strong. Looks like he has no struggles. Verse 5, they are free from the burdens common to man. Now, that's an over-exaggeration, but it sometimes feels that way. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. And he just continues to talk about how prosperous they look like they're doing. Look at verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Have you ever thought about how the wicked just keep getting more money and more money? You ever thought about how these rap stars and these basketball stars have no sense of morality, but yet they have millions of dollars when your family, like my family, works so hard. My dad's worked his whole life and never held a million dollars in his hands, and yet these, these sinners, these vile creatures have millions of dollars in their hands, and they waste it. Come on, if you've never felt envious of that, then you're not human. Come on. You know there's been times in your life where you asked yourself, what am I doing wrong? Because they must be so right. We've all asked it. They must be so right. Look at verse 13. Here's when you know you're heading down the wrong path. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. You know, once you have a pity-patty party, it's over for you. Because there's only going to be two people in that pity-patty party. That's you and the devil. And you know the devil's going to come right next to you and go, Oh, yeah, you're so plagued. You're, you're so pathetic. Look at your life. And you're going to be like, Nobody loves me. And the devil's going to say, Yeah, that's right. Nobody loves you. And then what's going to be the outcome? What's going to be the final statement? Where does your pity-patty party end? God is no good. Because if God was good, I would have a job. Come on. If God was good, my child never would have died. If God was good, I never would have had to move out of that house. If God was good, I never would have these problems. That's a lie. I'm going to tell you where they come from in just a moment, but those are lies. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak such... I would have betrayed your children. Here he gets the revelation. I can't talk like this. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Verse 17, what was oppressive to him? I'm trying to understand why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. It's hard to figure out. He said, Verse 17, till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. You see, that's why you got to come to church, somebody, because when you step into the house of God, you're going to feel the presence of the Lord, and you're going to know that these people will perish eternally in hell. But you've got a place in glory, a mansion prepared for you, and Jesus Christ has your name written on the palm of His hand. You are a citizen of another nation. Amen. You see, God put it in David's heart. David, uh, just get into the temple. Get around me and I'll teach you therein. And then David begins to see it differently. You place their feet on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed. Before you know it, they're gone. They're over. Their memories erased. And your eternal soul is with God forever. Let me give you now the answer of why bad things happen. I know you've seen the the little commercials on TV. You've heard the, the answers from people on television or movies. Why do bad things happen? I'm going to tell you right here, number one, why bad things happen. There is sin upon the earth, and sin brings death. The first reason why bad things happen is because there's sin on this earth. When Adam and Eve were created, there was no destruction. There was no death. There was no heartbreak. There was no sickness. Sin brought death. I was born without 20-20 vision. You all are blurry to me right now. The same way I was born with blurry eyes is the way a child is born crippled. Sin brought destruction to the human body. That child did not sin morally to receive the punishment of being crippled, no more than I sinned morally to receive the punishment of having blurry vision. You and I all have imperfections. Some of them are recessive. Some of them are hidden and they'll come out later if you don't deal with them. Some of them have been passed down through your genes. All of these different types of cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, these different types of things, people are prone to high cholesterol, etc. Why do these things plague mankind? Because mankind is suffering the penalty of sin upon his body, and the ultimate penalty is death. So as much as we feel sorry and pity and pray for that crippled child, all of us will be crippled one day in a nursing home. All of us. As much as I feel pity for the person who goes blind, one day you'll go blind. Or you're saying, Pastor, I don't know. Yes, or you'll get hit by a car and die. I mean, we all will die one way or another. But if you let your body just go without anything prohibiting it, you would eventually lose all of your faculties. It's the grace of God that people even die sometimes the way we do. And I know you're thinking, how can that possibly be the grace of God? It is, my friends. Think about this. Do you want to live to your 120? No eyes, no use of your limbs. Your mind has gone. You have diapers on like my grandma does at 90. Come on, somebody. It's the grace of God that just says, take them home now. And it's the grace of God that gives caring physicians wisdom Is God's. It doesn't belong to this world. The doctor's wisdom comes from God. It's caring physicians, and we always knew this, by the way, that come up with cures and, and ways to fix our ailments and ways to enjoy life. But eventually it all breaks. I thank God for caring people who care for the crippled, the blind. I thank God for technologies and for medicine. But ultimately, everybody has sinned through Adam, and everybody dies. Ultimately. That's number one. Somebody say sin. Number two, creation is destructive now. When they see a hurricane, what do people say? That's an act of God. Now, does that mean God was literally up in the sky? (sighs) I don't like New Orleans. Hurricane Katrina, come. Not necessarily. Could God do that? That's going to be our last one, that God does things in the earth, but not necessarily. And I would venture to say almost all of every destructive thing you've ever seen in nature is all just because nature is sinful as man's body is sinful. Upon the garden, there was never a storm. And I can show you this through science. It's not just a belief. That science, if, if our earth had a certain type of an atmosphere, and if we will tilt tilted a certain way, there would never be storms. And that's what we believe we were before Adam sinned. And after the flood, God cursed the land. God tilted our world. That's why we have polar caps. And I couldn't explain it all to you right now. But the Bible says that the creation itself groans right now. Tsunamis come when earthquakes happen in the ocean. Different temperatures over water create typhoons and hurricanes. Tectonic plates moving underneath the earth cause earthquakes that damage the land. Are you all with me? Rain, floods, and all of these different things. Why is there no control to the weather? Because the weather is set on a course of destruction, just like man's body is. And number three reason why bad things happen is that there are evil creatures on this earth called man or mankind. And man does a lot of evil all by himself. Man makes bombs and blows people up. Men in different nations cause revolution and kill a hundred thousand of their own people in genocide. It's not God's fault that God allowed that man to breathe. God gave that man the same breath he gave you and I. God gave him a choice just like he gave you and I. It's not God's fault that that man chose to kill 100,000 in genocide. God will be just and fair and judge him. But the answer to the question, why does it happen? Because God said, if you sin, this is what will happen. You will know good and evil. And when Adam and Eve ate of that tree, they now know good and they know evil. And men most of the time are what? Evil. Most of the time, men will choose evil. There was a study done in one of the universities of human moral behavior, and you would be shocked by what the majority of people said. Six out of ten people said they would have an affair with somebody's wife if they could get away with it. The majority of people, seven out of ten, said they would steal if they could get away with it. This institute, just everybody was interviewed, old and young, rich and poor. And they said, in secret, in private, tell us who you really are on the inside. Like four out of ten would murder if they could get away with it. I'm telling you, man's heart is predominantly evil. And then the last thing why bad things happen is because God punishes Now, this is the last one, and the one that's very few and far and in between. So this is why I saved it, because a lot of times we'll say, well, you're sick. Did you do something bad? You must have done something bad. And Dr. Miller was here, and he really touched on those things. I don't believe that your sickness and that your flat tire and that you lost your job or all of these things happen just because God is punishing you. I'm going to give you another way to look at it, but sometimes God does punish but here's how you know you're being punished by God. Because if somebody says, how do I know if I was being punished? God redeems you from the punishment. God does not just allow you to be punished for punishment's sake. If God said you lost your job because you weren't coming on time, that was a bad thing. Then God teaches you a lesson in the midst of that. Are you with me? Come on, somebody say Amen. Number one, sin is upon the earth. Number two, creation is destructive. Number three, men are evil. Number four, God punishes people. Now turn to Jeremiah 20, verse 7, and ask yourself this question, those of you who are in church. Do you feel like you were deceived on what Christianity really was? Because now that I just explained to you that you will suffer in your Christianity, do you feel like you're deceived? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? Well, pastor... Somebody would probably say it like that, but they would never really do it in public. But I'll imitate, Pastor, I did think my life would always be good and perfect now that I was a Christian. Some of you might be thinking that. Be honest with yourself. You know why there's so many empty chairs and every church would be so much more full and there's empty chairs everywhere all over the world in churches today? It's because of the same reason. People think God owes them something he never promised to give them. And they say, why should I believe in that preacher's God? Why should I believe in that God of the Bible? When I lost my job, when I lost my child, I was molested when I was young. I've gone through hard times. I've lost my home. And I tried that church stuff, and it didn't work. And as a matter of fact, life was better when I never even went to church. Just like the pagans of Judea saying, when we worship the Queen of Heaven, everything was so much better. Look at Jeremiah 20, verse 7. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here's the turning point. Jeremiah, remember that prophet we talked about? What was his call? His call was to warn the people. Like Stephen, he was beginning to get rejected. People weren't listening to him. Now look in verse 7. Oh, Lord, you deceived me and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. I wish I could sit down every single person that thinks they have something to complain about and say, you have nothing to to compare your life to. Because you know when people tell me, well, I've been molested or I was hurt and how could God do that? I understand that they've been hurt. I understand there's things that they can't figure out. But listen to me. Have you ever served God with your whole heart, mind, and soul? Have you ever preached God's Word for years, 10, 15 years, and feel at the end of it, it was worthless? No. Could you imagine being God's prophet? I mean, okay, it's all right if something bad happens to somebody else, but this man is God's mouthpiece. There is scripture written by him. I mean, if anybody would know God, this man would know God. At the end of his day, he's saying, God and I, we're God, you and me, God, we're done. Most of the people I talk to have never had a relationship with God and they're so angry at Him because you imagine being angry with God after He's brought you joy in the morning, after He's made you weep and He's comforted you, after you've preached and you've seen miracles, after you've seen Him do all of these things, and at the end of all of that, something goes so bad that you look at God in the eye and you know He's a person. He's not just made up. You know He's a person. And you say, I can't take it anymore, God. That's where Jeremiah was at. He was God's best friend. He was the closest man to God on the planet at this time. He heard God's voice. He saw God's power. God spoke to him from the time of a child. He's not becoming atheist. He knows God is real. He knows God is with him. But he is saying, God, you have deceived me. What was he saying deceived him? He thought when he preached God's word, people were going to listen to him. And here he says, I preach your word. I'm telling them what you're telling me to say. But now all I have is reproach and insult. You see, I want to encourage you with Jeremiah's cry because there's no one here that knows God better than Jeremiah did. None of us have ever even wrote Scripture. He heard the audible voice of God. So if he himself felt deceived, you're not in bad company. Other people have felt that. So here is where we clarify the issue. Number one, you obey God, not because of the benefits, but because He's God. See, Jeremiah needed that revelation, and he gets it later, and you can read his story. But that's the first thing you need to know, is that you obey God, not because of the benefits, but because He is God. It's not because you get a new house, you get a new pony, and everything works right in your life. Yes, you testify about those things. Yes, you thank God for those things. Yes, you ask God for those things. But when those things do not happen, you serve God anyway. You serve God when you're homeless, just as you do when you're in a condo. You serve God when you're walking to work, just as you do in a car. Why? Because He's God. Because He is God. He deserves it. Let me give you an example. Turn with me to Luke 15, 25. If you're being blessed, say, I'm blessed. You see, this is going to keep you through your hardship. Because so many people go through hardships and they say, God, where are you? You don't understand. He's there. And it's not your fault. It's not His fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's the fault of sin evil. But there is a solution and it's being in love with Him. Having faith. And I'll get to that. Luke 15 when you're there, say I'm there. I'm going to read to you a most peculiar story. A part of a story that many of you know very well. The prodigal son. How many have heard that story? The prodigal son he does wrong. He takes his family's inheritance, spends it all. Then he comes back home. He gets well received. But did you ever pay attention to the prodigal son's brother? Watch the brother's reaction to this. Luke fifteen 25. You're going to learn something here. Meanwhile, so while this is going on, it's a great party for the prodigal son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So they're having a Holy Ghost party. Verse 26. So he called one of the servants and asked them, What's going on? Verse 27. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. Angry. And refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father. Now listen to his his answer to his father. Look. All these, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you killed the fattened calf for him. Do you understand the heart of the other brother? What does he say? He says, I haven't gone out and been with prostitutes. I haven't gone out and stolen anything. I've gone out and done all this good. And there's no party for me. He says, I haven't even had one party. And he says, I've been slaving all of these years. You see, this son is typical of a Christian who's become just complacent with obeying commands. And they think that Christianity is just about, if I do this, I get this. If I do this, if I get this. And then bad things happen or good things happen to other people and they feel ripped off and they say back to God, but God, I've been praying all of this time. I've been slaving all of this time. And none of that has happened to me. You've blessed this other person instead of me. You've done this to me. It's all your fault. You know why? Because they don't understand. Being a Christian is not having an inheritance. It's not heaven. It's being a son of the king. Having a father who loves you. It's a relationship. You obey God not because of the benefits, but because of who he is. The son had a father. That's enough. The the father says, I've always been with you. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me. That's the most important thing. And then next, and everything I have is yours. Will God ultimately hold anything good from you and I? No, there is no limit to God's goodness. When we see our life done and finished and the the puzzle put together, we will stand and rejoice and say, God is good. And all the time, God is good. We will sing the song the Israelites used to sing. God is good and His mercy endures forever. Don't let some little trial come into your life and make you feel like you're slaving for God for no benefit. There is a reason why we obey God when there's no benefit. It's because He's God. Because we're in a relationship with Him. And then ultimately He does bless us. Look at Job 13.15. Look at Job 13.15. If you all know the story of Job, this guy was torn up from the up, And God was allowing it all. I want you to hear what Job says. These are words that if you want to memorize a scripture, here's a scripture that you should say next time you go through a hard time. And you feel like you're getting the raw end of the deal. Those of you wanting to go to Bible college and you never have a church. But you always have a ministry and you want to complain because you don't have a big building. Say this Job 13, 15. Job going through the, the time of his persecution of the devil and boils and all of these things. The, the friends around him are saying, Curse God and die. What does he say back? He says, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Come on, somebody. Look at what Job says, though God himself kills me, I will hope in him. Have you made that resolve in your heart? It doesn't matter if my car breaks down on the way to church. That ain't a sign that I was supposed to stay at home. And that may not even be the devil messing with me. It might just be because those Michelin tires wore out because you haven't changed them and you hit a nail. But you just rejoice in God and you tell the devil, though he slay me, though you slay me, it don't matter. I'm still going to serve God. I'm tired of Christians making excuses with their pragmatic philosophy. We need some Christians that say, even if it don't work on this earth, I'm still going to be right with God. I'll be a Stephen Jesus, even if I don't see a hundred thousand souls saved. I'll still preach it right, because you know it's tight. Come on, we're going to stand up and do it, because we know it's for God. Who watches our lives? Who's with you every step of the way? Who knows what you've been through? It's God. And He will reward you. He will bless you in the end. Because it's all for Him. And lastly, what can we do in these times As we can learn these lessons. Write down these three lessons. Number one, you can know that ultimately all things will work together for good. I'm going to read you one of the best scriptures you've ever heard in your whole life. Many of you, it's already your favorite, but look at Romans chapter 8. One of the greatest scriptures to read in any trial or test you face in life, or when you feel like you deserve better. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Does God work for the evil? No. What does God work for? God works for the... Everybody say that. God works for the good. You say God can turn child molestating... Being abused as a child into good? Yes. Can God turn murder and violence in the city of Chicago for good? Yes. Can God turn you losing a child like my mother did with Jenny in a casket? My mother weeping? at the casket, on her saddest day of her life. Can God use that for good? Yes, He can. When you are holding the hand of the closest person you've ever loved in life and you say goodbye and you never see them again, can God use that for good? Yes. Can God use two or three years of a recession in an economy for His good? Yes. Can he use a storefront church with 100 people that should have 10,000 by now? Can he use it for his good? Yes. Can he use somebody who's been divorced, who was the cheater, the adulterer? Can God still turn it for good? Yes, he can. That's what makes him God. That's what makes him God, is he can take the things that you and I say are worthless. It will never work out. It will never work out. This is over. My life is destroyed. It's over. God says, I can still use it because he's the potter. So that's the first thing that you and I learn is we don't get into some pity, patty party saying, God deceived me. No, we look at it exactly the opposite. If any good thing has happened to me, that proves he's good. It doesn't matter if a zillion evil things have happened. If there's one good thing I know God has done, it means he's good. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because if there is no God, there would only be evil. There would only be evil. All would be evil. There would be no person helping an old lady across the street. There would be no single mother raising two children. If you've ever seen one good thing in your life, you know that there's a good God out there, and he's working for your good, even though it doesn't always seem that way. First thing is that all things work together for good, and it's for His purpose. you got to put that part on there, because if you don't put the purpose on there, you'll still have a little complaining attitude. Well, how can this be good? Because it doesn't fit into my plan. How can this be good? Because it doesn't make sense to me, because it's not your purpose. It's His purpose. Number two, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, is your faith begins to grow. And I know that people think that that's a cheap answer, but that is not a cheap answer. When you and I get to heaven, we will see the importance of faith. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to please God. Do you understand that? I want everybody, once you get that passage, to look up here. When I tell you that struggles and trials increase your faith, don't just shrug that off and say, well, what's faith, pastor? I mean, come on, it's not like a million bucks. It's not like I can put my hand on it. It's it's not like it's a car or a house. Come on, what's, what's so important about faith? I mean, do I really even need it? I mean, come on, I already believe in God. No, you don't understand. Without faith, everybody look up at me. It's impossible to please him. That means faith pleases him. More faith, you please him more. A lot of faith, you please him a lot. There was times that Jesus was walking the earth. Everybody catch this revelation. It will help you right now. Come on. There were times Jesus was walking the earth and somebody would do something in faith. Jesus would stop and be amazed. It actually says amazed at his faith. Jesus turned around and said, What great faith is this? I have seen none like this in the whole house of Israel. Your faith can make God stand and do a 180 and look right at you. Do you understand that faith is your connection to God. That's the only thing you have. I know we cheapened it in a society. You've got to have faith, faith, faith. Michael, whatever that guy's name was, George Michael, that flamboyant guy, just, you know, cheapened it. Oh, you got to have faith. we got to pray to make it today. MC Hammer. It's like like we just cheapen it. And then we just say it flippantly. Oh, just have faith. Oh, just. No, no, no. You don't understand. Faith is all you have. You think you have a job to get you through? Come on, that job ain't going to get you through. It's only God that's going to get you through. Or you think you got a doctor? Come on, ain't a doctor that's going to get you through. You think you got something? Only thing you and I have, let's be real about it, is a God in heaven that reaches out and has mercy on us when we don't deserve it. And he says, have faith and you can move a mountain. That's all we have, people. That's When your life is said and done, it was the faith you put in a God because everything else will let you down. Everything. That's all you and I have. What kept people, you know, going through the hardest time I was watching about Holocaust survivors at Auschwitz. You know, Hungarian people were killed by the hundreds of thousands. It was faith that a God watched over Israel that would survive those people. It's all you got is faith. When everything's stripped from you, shaved head, going to a gas chamber, it's only faith that you believe that that is going to turn out for good somehow. And God gave nation of Israel their home out of the Holocaust. And you may say, how could our God even allow that? My friends, it worked for His good. And when you get to heaven, you'll understand the purpose of His plan. I don't understand it now, but I I can read His word and know it's going to grow my faith. And so I have to say, yes, Lord, are you with me? In First Peter one six, look at First Peter. Look at what Peter says. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. They have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold. Come on, you see, God values your faith more than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result. Why do I have faith? Why do I keep faith, Pastor? So that it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, it's all about giving Him glory. God, I didn't quit when things got hard. I kept faith. The Bible says that brings them praise. God, I didn't get depressed when and died. When my cousin died, I kept faith in you. That gives God honor. God, I didn't give up tithing when I lost my job. The Bible says that gives them praise. When a soul, a human soul, people, we're not animals and we're not robots. When a human soul says, God, I can't figure it out, but I trust you and I give you the obedient heart no matter what. It gives him praise. It gives him honor. And lastly, fitting right into that last point, your faith grows and God gets glory. Would you stand with me, please? Why do bad things happen on the earth? Because of sin. Creation is destructive. Men are evil and God punishes people. Rachel, would you come? Why do Christians feel deceived? Because they think they deserve better when really God said, Obey me because I'm God and obey him even unto death. What are the benefits ultimately of God doing this? Is he just a wicked God? Because he could do it all by himself. I mean, ultimately, if he's the one holding the anthill, he can squash whoever he wants, couldn't he? Come on, if God is that big and we're just the answer, it didn't even have to be a purpose. But God tells us there's a purpose. He says all things will work together for good. He says your faith will grow, and that's valuable because it results in praise and honor to Him. And God will get all the glory. Put up there for me, brother, Habakkuk 3. Another one of the great prophets of Jeremiah's time was seeing destruction come to the people of Israel. And once again, they are freaking out because they're saying, we are God's people. How could this evil be happening to us? But Habakkuk catches this revelation right at the end. It's one of the greatest scriptures. When I first heard it in Bible college, it was one of those things that I never forgot. I remember where I was sitting where I was when I first heard this. I remember who was preaching it, old brother T. He taught me a lot of those sayings you hear me say, tight but right. This is what he read, starting in verse 16. I heard, and my heart my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Habakkuk one, was one of the latter prophets, and he's saying... You already saw, by the way, Babylon come and take over. Daniel, you all remember Daniel in the lion's den? You know why he was thrown to a lion's den? Because he was a Jew living in Babylon. He was a slave in that nation. If you ever want to know why Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were Jews getting thrown into the fire because they were slaves living in Babylon. Well, here's Habakkuk, and he says, I heard that God's going to now judge Babylon for what they've done to us. And he starts to tremble. He's afraid even for them. But he knows it's still going to be a hard time. And look at verse 17. He says though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food though there are no sheep in the pen and no uh, pen and no cattle in the stalls yet will I rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my savior Metro praise you need to learn to praise God when there's nothing right and everything seems wrong because your God is with you. Would you keep lifting up a praise in the house of God. We worship you. We pray.